Thank you for standing. You may be seated. Mike, thank you for playing. Ladies, thank you for singing. Matthew, chapter number five. Matthew, chapter five. Travis, I'm just going to stick with this mic. Matthew, chapter number five. We have been in our series, of course, The Beatitudes, and we have entitled that series, The Kingdom is Ours. And we are embarking now on the seventh Beatitude. Really, it's the last that at least describes the character of a Christian. But verse number nine says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Actually, I'm going to switch on you, Travis. I'm going to go to this one. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And so we come today, this morning, as I said earlier, to the, to the last one that least describes our character. There is one more beatitude, but it speaks about the experience of a Christian that is being blessed as well as being persecuted for that life, for living the, 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 this blessed life that is described and so as we said at the beginning of the series, that these Beatitudes, they, they tell us what we ought to look like. Uh, they, they give us a grid to kind of just measure our progress in our life. And so today we come to the last of these distinguishing marks, and that is that a true Christian, a, a Christian that is following the Lord, is going to indeed be a peacemaker. Again, our plan as we've done all through this series, is to look at what that means. What, is, what does Jesus mean when he says, blessed are the peacemakers? And then next week, we're going to look at how we advance in that. How do we, how, how do we go after this blessing? How do we pursue this calling? And so the fact that this indeed is the last of the seven Beatitudes of, uh, that are connected to how we are to live, it suggests its importance. Oh, I would believe that the first one does as well, as does the last one. This, if you'll allow me to say it, it's the top of the rung on the ladder. It's the last ring, if you'll allow me to say, on the monkey rings that we have been embarking upon. It's what tells us about the heart of God. And I'll be honest with you, this is the most difficult one of all. It's actually much more difficult than, actually, than purity. The cities in our country that we have grown to love have become notorious for violence. The Bible speaks about that in Psalm 55, verse 9. Destroy, O Lord, and divide their tongues, for I've seen violence and strife in the city. There's strife in the city because there is strife in the family. And there is strife in the family because there is strife in our hearts. And Psalm 55 is a lament over broken relationships. For those of you that were in our 10 o'clock hour, we're going through a study of from Genesis to Revelation, seeing the redemptive thread all the way through. And we learned a little bit about what that, that this lament is. But it's a, it's a crying out before the Lord over broken relationships. So if you go through that experience, 
you will find Psalm 55 extremely helpful. When David says, I see violence and I see, I see strife in the city, he's, he's talking about the city of God. The strife and violence of, uh, of, did not come from any outside army. It's not what he's referring to. It rose up from among the people of God. Verse 12 of Psalm 55, For it was not an enemy that reproached me, then I could have borne it. Neither was it he that hated me that magnified himself against me. Then I would have hid myself from him. But it was thou, a man, mine equal, my guide, and mine acquaintance. David speaks words that will be well understood by anyone who's ever experienced the, the grief of, a, of trust being betrayed. Whether that's in a marital relationship, a familiar relationship of any kind, or even in a church. David goes on to say in verse number 20, He hath put forth his hands against such as be at peace with him. He hath broken his covenant. The words of his mouth were smoother than butter, but war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet were they drawn swords. And there's only one answer to that. Verse 22, cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Thomas Watson, who I've quoted so much through this series, gives this vivid picture. Satan kindles the fire of contention in men's hearts and then stands and warms himself at that fire. Just think about that. What a vivid picture. Satan will start a fire between you all. And then he comes along and he warms himself as he watches us just cut at each other. So there are peacemakers and there are peace breakers. There might be somewhere in between, but we're either going after peace or we're going after breaking that peace. And God calls us, God calls you, and God calls me to be a peacemaker in a world of conflict. Oh, it's not just been a couple decades since, uh, since September 11th. We are seeing conflict all around our world, in our cities, in our country. And so let me give you some scripture over the course of this message that are going to remind you of the importance and the blessing that comes with peace. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7.15, But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, in cases, but God hath called us to peace. So if you belong to Jesus Christ, this is your calling. God calls you to contribute to peace. And where? It's to the peace of your family. I want you to picture your father right now, if they're still alive. I want you to picture your, picture your mother, picture your brother, your sister, or your son, or your daughter. They are your family. Oh, you might have a loving family where everyone gets along, and you might have a family where everyone's at their, cut, everyone's at their throats. They may not be speaking to each other right now. Whatever the situation, God calls you 
believer, to contribute to the best of your ability to peace. I don't know what you're like with your siblings. I don't know what you're like with the, 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 the parental, whether it's your children or, 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 or your, your parents. I, I don't know what that is necessarily in your families. But God calls you and God calls me that in that realm, we are to be agents to the best of our ability for peace, contributing towards peace, not trying to break that peace apart. We're trying to make it better. We've been called to make it better. It's the same in the church. As members of a congregation, God calls you to contribute to peace. We are brothers and sisters, where? In Christ. So as a church, we are family. You know what I love about Redwood? Redwood actually feels like family if you allow it to. It feels like it. It's great. It's awesome if you allow it, if you'll, if you'll lean in enough, if you'll allow us to be a part of it enough. There's family, and so we are called to peace. It's not an option. We don't get to decide if we're going to sow uh, unity or discord. No, no, no. We are to be agents of peace. So wherever you are, whatever you do, God has called you to peace, whether it's a restaurant, community, our workplace. You need to begin to plan for it. Look what, look what Solomon said in, in, in Proverbs 12. Deceit is in the heart of them that imagine evil, but those who plan peace have joy. Since this is the calling of God, we should be intentional about pursuing it. Where we do not have it, as Christians, we should begin to ask, what is the best way we can get it? If we don't have peace, our prayer ought to be, okay, how, what can I do, Lord? What, what are some steps I can take? Begin to plan. How can I get the peace that I should be having? And then if we're experiencing peace, we ought to be saying, Lord, how can I keep it? How can I be an agent that keeps this peace? Now, what is peace? It's interesting. The Bible uses the word shalom or, or peace in more, it's, it's, it's more than the absence of conflict. Often that's what we think of. When, when everything's going well, I'm at peace. But it means so much more than the absence of conflict. Let me tell you what it means. It is the active enjoyment of all that is good. As I think about what I say and what I do, I should be thinking, how do I, how do I get to this place? What, what's going to promote peace? What's going to promote good? What would promote the greatest wholeness and health in my family, in my church, colleagues, neighbors, friends? This word shalom is the idea of wholeness, completeness. How do I create that? How do I plan for it? How do I begin to plot my day and what I'm going to say and what I'm going to do for there to be peace? You're going to have to work at it. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which is no one will see the Lord. Peacemakers, they don't stop with just the plans. They begin to plan the work. 
They work the plan. The word strive indicates effort, indicates hard work, perseverance. There's a reason why this is the seventh beatitude. There's a reason why this is the summit, if you'll allow me to say it that way. Today we look at what it means to be a peacemaker and why peacemakers are called the sons or the children of God. Let's start off with the meaning of peacemaker. What is, what's the meaning of a peacemaker? Well, peacemakers are people who bring peace, that shalom, that wholeness, that completeness, that goodness to others because they have it themselves. See, a person who lives with unresolved conflict in their own heart cannot bring peace to others. Conflict seems to follow some people around. Have you ever noticed that? This, no matter what, there's always conflict. The reason it flows from them is because it is living in them. This conflict that they're struggling, what fills you will ultimately spill out of you when others bump into you. That's life, right? We bump into people. We're doing life with people. So if conflict is what is inside of us, when we bump into others and when we do life, that is going to flow from within. So how do we get it? How do we, how do we get this peace? Well, peace in your heart flows from the purity of your life. Notice the order. Blessed are the pure in heart. For what? They shall see God. Then the next order. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. There is a direct connection. You don't believe me? I know you do, but if you don't, James says in James 3, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable. First pure, then peaceable. That's an order. I want you to listen very carefully. I, I know it's, it's hot, it's humid, it's kind of gloomy in here because the sun isn't shining. Lock in for the next couple minutes. I promise you, I can help you dearly. Peace of heart flows from the purity of heart. Why? Because the purity of heart, if you remember from last week, or the last two weeks, wills one thing. Remember? It's not a divided heart. It is a singular heart. It's singular. So the person who wills one thing is a person who can be at peace. The impure person has a heart that is fundamentally divided. He or she wants two contradictory things at the same time. I want the Lord. That's good. Ah, but I want this sin too. I want the Lord and I, I, I want this blessing but I like how this makes me feel. I like winning. And sometimes I'll win at any cost. Divided. Contrary one to the other. Not after one thing. Purity of heart flows into a peaceful heart. As long as these contradictory things are in our lives, as long as they're unresolved, 
As long as there's this unresolved conflict, as it rages, there will be no peace. James speaks about this in James 4, verse 1. From whence comes wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your passions that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have, and cannot obtain, and fight, ye fight and war. Yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Passions are at war at the core of a divisive person. If this person had come to a place of willing just one thing, they could have the means of dealing with their passions. But without purity, the person finds that they're constantly halt or limping between two opinions, as Elijah so wonderfully placed. Why are you going to remain halt? Why are you going to remain limping, is what he's saying, between two opinions when he's up there on Mount Carmel? He's a double-minded man, as James puts it. He becomes unstable in all his ways. That's why the Bible says that there is no peace for the wicked. There's no purity in that wicked heart. It's impossible. And so we are, if you're a believer, we're no longer wicked. We're now saints, right, that sin on this journey of, of, of becoming more like Christ. And so the wicked can't have peace because they can't have purity. Peace flows from purity. So the more you pursue purity, the more you will discover and enjoy peace in your heart. And so it's amazing how this week ties so much back to the last two. The more you pursue this purity, you will find more and more peace in your life. But the more you give way to impurity, the more conflict, disturbed and restless your life will be. It's a biblical principle. Purity brings the peace. Peacemakers are people who bring peace to others. Why? Because they have it themselves. Most of us can think of a relationship that ended in a way that we didn't want it to end, or we, like it just, it's not how we planned. Why? Because we live in a fallen world. So we can't, we obviously cannot control everything, but we are to do the best that we can. I'll, there's a verse later that says, you know, to the best of our ability in Romans, but we are to do it the best that we can to be in the recovery process. Sometimes we find ourselves in a place where we're not able to make peace. And if that's the case, Psalm 55 is for you. There can't be peace in that relationship. If you've tried everything, Lord, Lord I, I'm right with you. I'm trying. And you can't. Psalm 55 is for you. And so the meaning of a peacemaker really comes down to the purity of your heart. Let me say secondly, how you grow as a Christian. How does this, this entire series has been, it's been about sanctification. It's not about how you became a Christian, how you become a Christian. It's about how you grow as a Christian. This series is about maturity and what it looks like. And so if we're struggling with these fruits, these last three that have been fruits, then we got to go all the way back to the beginning, which we've said over and over and over again. There's no doctrine in the Bible that Christians struggle with more, I believe, than the doctrine of sanctification. We understand justification. We understand reconciliation. We've been forgiven. But it's this concept of sanctification that we tend to struggle with the most. It's this journey where we're trying to make this progress, but no Christian 
completes this journey while in this life. We stand sanctified in Christ, but the practical side of it is throughout this life. Purity of heart to will one thing, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to meekly submit to the will of God, those are all the beginnings of these things that are in the heart of every child of God. Hear hear, hear what I'm about to say. If there is no sense to which you are pursuing purity in your heart, you're not a Christian. Remember what these are. They're the mirrors. But hear what I said. If there's not a sense of desiring the purity of heart. We're not going to be perfect in it. We said that last week. But if there's a sense within you that says, I want to purify this heart, it's a good sign you're a believer. If there's not, you're not a Christian. If there's no sense in which you find yourself hungering and thirsting for righteousness, hear me carefully, you are not a Christian. Thanks for coming to church, Ryan. If there's no sense in which you are submitting yourself to God, you're not yet a Christian. So as we look at ourselves in the the mirror of the Beatitudes, we're going to be thankful for the grace of God, are we not? Because we've begun this journey. We're going to take this journey through the rest of our lives, and then we're going to be humbled because we're going to realize still how far we have to go. The most mature Christian in this room, that is your experience. You are amazed by the grace of God, and then you are humbled that there are still more to go. And that's for the most mature Christian in here. The whole question of sanctification is troubling many people for different reasons. Some lack progress because they do not see what they could become. They just say, well, this is just who I am. This is how I was raised. This is the baggage that comes with me. And this is just who I am. There's nothing that I can do anymore. Others see what they could become so clearly that they feel defeated. And they're overwhelmed by their lack of progress. So you see the antithesis of that? Some can't even see what they become. And then others like, man, I could become that, but oh, I'm so far away from it. And so they, they don't lean into this topic of sanctification. So let me say this. We desperately need balanced biblical thinking on sanctification. A few years ago, I, I found a little book by Hanley Mule. And I found it profoundly helpful. Here's what the book's called, Thoughts on Christian Sanctity. It's not the most exciting title. But back in the 19th century, they didn't so much care about, you know, the titles of things. But the first chapter of Mule's book on sanctification is titled this, Aims, Limits, and Possibilities. Hanley said this, It is nothing less than the supreme aim of the Christian gospel that we should be holy. So there's nothing less than that, that we are to live holy. So let's talk about this concept of of aims here for a a moment. And so Hanley, he says that in particular, he identifies this in, in a couple different ways. It's to be like him. It's to be like Christ, whom we've not seen him, we still love him. To displace ourselves from the throne of our life and to place Him supreme. 
So, we, so, so we're not the masters of our lives. We allow Christ to be the master of our lives. These are, the, these are our aims, that we are to be like him, to allow him to be on the throne of our life. And he says, to make not the smallest compromise with the slightest sin. So Hanley says this, we aim at nothing less than to walk with God all day long to abide every hour in Christ, to love God with all the heart and our neighbor as ourselves. Man, that, that should be our aim, that all day long I'm going to walk with the Lord. All day long I'm going to love him with all my heart and soul and mind and strength, and I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. That's my, that's my aim. But then he goes on to limits. So you aim high. But let's be real, there's going to be some limits. Hanley says this, I mean not limits in our aims, for there must be none, nor limits in divine grace itself, for there are none. But limits, however, caused in the actual attainments by us of Christian holiness. There will be limits to the last and very humbling limits to the last. It will be a sinner who walks with God. In other words, there's going to be limits to what you will be able to attain even in these beatitudes. Purity of heart. Meekly submitting to the will of God, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, the mourning over our sins. There will also be limits in what you attain when it comes to peacemaking. See, peace is never complete in this life. The world's going to persecute you. The world's going to hate you. The world's going to say evil against you. Didn't Jesus say that was going to happen? So that's naturally not peace, not everything. Oh, everything's just wonderful. There's going, there's not going to be perfect peace on this earth. And I alluded to this when Paul said in Romans 12, if it be possible, if it be possible, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. So all you can control is you. So if it's possible, you'd love to be able to live at peace with everybody, but you can't, but you ought to live peaceably with all men. It's you. You can only control yourself. And so there, of course, there's going to be limits to this. There's going to be situations where you cannot make peace. You want to. You're planning to make peace. You're literally pursuing that. You're, you're, you're striving for it, but it's not going to happen. But don't let that keep you from trying. <coughs> Do not quit the journey just because you can't get to the end of the road. And then he goes on to say possibilities. Aims, oh, aim high. And then limits. And then he goes on to possibilities. See, some Christians are troubled because they forget the limits. They're constantly scolding themselves for their lack of progress. They'll say things like, after all these years I've been a Christian, I should be further along in this area. However, others are hindered because they do not see the possibilities. They've not really grasped what God can do for them. They find it very difficult to picture themselves in a better spiritual condition. And that's why sometimes people can sit in church year after year after year, and there's no change. There's no growth. There's no victory because they don't see it. They don't see the possibilities of what God can do in their life. They speak about things like, well, I've just come to terms with who I am. 
There's a sadness about them because they do not have much hope. And so here's what you need for this balanced biblical approach to sanctification. Embrace the aim. It's high. Recognize the limits and go after the possibilities. Embrace the aim. And what's the aim? High, to be like Christ. For Christ to be on the throne of our hearts and our lives. And for us not to make any sin small in our life. That's a high aim. So embrace that. But then also recognize there's going to be some limits. You're still going to struggle. You're still going to sin. Because we're saints that sin on this progress to recovery. But then I want you to go after the possibilities. Go after it. God, I I want that mountain, so to speak. All of that is beautifully expressed in the prayer of Robert Murray McShaney. He says, Lord, make me as holy as it is possible for a pardoned sinner to be. It's a good prayer. When it comes to peacemaking, why don't you pray this? Let me bring peace as far as it is possible in this fallen world. Let me, Lord, let me be an agent of peace as far as it is possible in this fallen world. Thirdly, we we doing okay? We're all right? It's almost lunchtime. Peacemakers are called children of God. Why? What's this? Why? Well, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God, Jesus tells us. Well, God has peace in himself. In the Bible, he's called the God of peace. Let me show that to you. Hebrews 13, 20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. But he's the God of peace. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. Romans 15.33, now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. We spoke last week, if you were here, about beholding the glory of God about gazing upon the glory of God. We talked about that. I want you to work really hard in the next few moments. You're actually doing fine this morning, but I want you to work really, really hard to gaze upon the glory of the Lord in the next few moments. God has peace in himself. God of peace, God of peace. So he has peace in himself. And I want you to think about the complexities of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The persons of the Trinity are one in purpose. They are one in love. Hence, God can say, I am the God of peace. Our Lord Jesus Christ, he's described as the Prince of Peace in Isaiah 9.6. At his coming in Matthew, the angels declare glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. The Bible says that Christ, that he is our peace. All our peace is going to come from him and through him. He came into the world to make peace and he did it by shedding his blood. Paul tells us in Colossians 1. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. 
So the Holy Spirit, according to Matthew chapter 3, is the spirit of peace. Do you remember when Jesus was baptized? When he came up out of the water, the dove descended down on Jesus, and that dove is the symbolization, right, of peace. It's a type in the Bible. So the greatest revelation of the glory of God ever made to man in this world was at the cross, where justice and love meet. Why are his love and his justice meeting there? Because he's making peace with God for us. That's what Colossians 1.19 is saying. Peace. The whole Trinity is all about peace. Singular. Remember, can't be divided. They're singular on this matter so that we could have peace with God. God, who is the source of peace, sends his son, who's the agent of peace, and through the Holy Spirit drawing us so that we then can have peace with God. Beautiful. So peace, my friend, if you are a believer, is residing inside of you. It's not something you have to conjure up this morning. It's not some backpack you've got to try to put on and you try to, you know, do penance to get. No, 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 it's inside of you. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. When you make peace, you reflect the likeness of God. People see the reflection of his glory. And think about how God makes peace and what it is going to take you to make peace. It took Christ's son. It took God's son, Christ. It took his blood. It's going to be work for you and for me to make peace. But let me say this, God's way of making peace practically. Let me just, how can we do this practically? How? I don't want to leave you with just the theology of it. Let me take you kind of the gospel a little bit and see how we can make this practical. First off, do not stand on your rights. Philippians 2 teaches us that Christ was in the form of God, but thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus Christ did not, did not cling to, did not, did not hold to his rights. Jesus left heaven. Jesus stepped down. He came into this world for us. Why? We've already seen. To make peace. You will not make peace by standing on your rights. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his study on the Sermon on the Mount said this, if God stood upon his rights and dignity upon his person, every one of us would be consigned to hell and absolute perdition. We live in a world of rights don't we? These are my rights. It's my right to be able to do this. I can change this if I want to. Totally taking out God in any of this. I can change my gender. I can do anything. It's my rights. We live in a world that is crying out rights, 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 rights. It may be your right. 
And there may be times when it's appropriate to insist on your rights, but what is the best way to make peace? So every time you think about your rights, remind yourself, if God stood on his rights, I would be in hell forever, and so would everyone else. So do you have to stand on those rights? Ponder it. I mean, there might be some appropriate times, absolutely, you should stand on it. But ponder it. Let me say this. Move towards trouble. Now, with that said, don't always move towards trouble. Because some people are drawn to trouble. They look for fights because they want to get involved. People like that, they're obviously not what we're talking about. They're not a Christian that's going through the Beatitudes trying to be more like him. Our calling is to act as peacemakers, and where you can be a peacemaker, you will move towards trouble. That's what God did in the incarnation. We were in trouble. A wise person once told me, one of my, one of my counselors, when kind of dealing with situations of conflict, and as a pastor, I've dealt with conflict all basically 19, 20 years of ministry. And their advice, when we were talking about it, there was a specific situation, called him up, and here's what he said, always move towards the barking dog. I'm like, who does that, right, in real life? And that, I'm scared to death of a barking dog at me. But he's like, always move towards that barking dog. It's our instinct to kind of back off. But when the world was barking at God, he didn't back off. He moved toward us. He came to us. And what did it lead to? To the shedding of his blood on the cross so that we might have peace. And so if you're going to be a peacemaker, you're going to have to move towards trouble. Doesn't mean that we go looking for a fight. That's not what we're talking about. But just you are desiring for peace, so it means you're going to have to move towards trouble. God moved towards trouble. Let me give you the next one. Making peace does not always mean avoiding conflict. Peacemakers often cause trouble in pursuing peace. I believe that's what Jesus was referring to when he said in Matthew 10, 34, think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. So when the peacemaker, who absolutely is Jesus, we already know that he came, what, to bring peace. So when the peacemaker came, there was an outpouring of violence against him. People stood against him. They took sides over him. And so Christ came to make peace between men and God. He moved toward the trouble, but when he moved towards the trouble, the trouble flared. And we can read all about that in the Gospels. There will often be the experience of the peacemaker. It's one of the most dangerous jobs in all of the world. It takes immense courage to be a peacemaker. But you have it. Let me say finally, love before you are loved in return. Practically. What are we, you know, what are we talking about? Practically. God's way of making peace. Love before you are loved in return. Romans 5.8, but God commendeth, God shows, God displayed his love toward us 
And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amazing. How could you do that? Could you love and keep loving while love is not returned? Of course not. But the Spirit in you can. You ask Him to help you. You unleash Him. Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. Peacemaker. So here's a prayer that you could offer to the Lord. Lord, make me a channel of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me bring your love. Where there is injury, let me bring your pardon. Lord, make me a channel of your peace. It's the hardest one. And if you're struggling with it, go back to the first one. Lord, this is impossible. You know my situation. You know this, this relationship. God, I'm bankrupt before you unless you come and rescue me. And you start the progress. You start the progression to where you ultimately get to the place peace. Blessed are the peacemaker, for they shall be called the children of God. Is that your story? I pray that it is. I pray that we realize that there's blessing, amazing blessing that is connected to this. You know what Christians have sometimes been known for? Always mad at the world. Always mad at politics. Always mad. What did Jesus say? The world would know that we're followers. We're known by our love. Every head bowed, every eye closed.